We live in a culture that I don't have time to explain all the underpinnings of it, nor am I an expert in the field, but you may have noticed it's increasingly hard for people to agree on whether any particular thing is true, or even in some circles what reality is. Have you noticed? That takes places, that takes place everywhere, living rooms and very academic settings. On the personal level, it sounds like this. Someone will say, well, that's true for you, but not for me. And it's hard to know what to say about that, if, unless we're talking about whether we like vanilla ice cream or not. It's hard to know what to say when someone says that what you think are objective, factual, actual, in-the-world realities that you see as perfectly true they simply say, well, I, I don't believe that's true, and that kind of brings us to an impasse. In an academic setting on both continents, both here in the United States, here in Southern California, actually, and in places like the University of Oxford, some incredibly intelligent people, one Oxford professor in particular, has said in academic writing, not trying to make a joke, making a serious argument, one of the greatest scholars in the world says there's a very real possibility that we're actually living in one vast computer simulation. In other words, that the matrix is real, okay? Here, closer to home, some Southern California scientists have said, based on what they think are good scientific reasoning, that there's no actual way to know what external reality is that our brains are constructing something that we experience as reality, but we don't know what it is. Again, it's not my area, and I've only read on a popular level, but just on the quick reading of that, I wonder how they reason through the problem that if reality, external reality is not immediately available, I wonder how they think they can make accurate observations about it. Because if reality is not available and they're writing things down about what they, to correct that, they're kind of caught in the loop. You see what I mean? If reality is not there, how can I know that when I say reality is not there, I'm actually there to say it? <laughs> and how can I have any certainty that it means anything? Now you know why Thanksgiving was so awkward when you talked about certain things. It's just hard in the 21st century to say whether anything is true. And this week, and I won't embarrass anyone, but I met with two really cool, wonderful people that I just immediately felt at home with. They asked a very practical question regarding Christmas and the Bible and heaven and hell and all the things that basically pastors all over the world are telling their congregations. They said, how do we know any of that is real? How do we know it's true? Well, that is the money question, isn't it? See, fiction is a great hobby, but a terrible foundation for your life. I love Star Wars, but on my deathbed, I, have, I hope I have something that is more real and factual to hang on to than the Force. <laughs> There's no reason no good reason to live a life if it's not based in something that is true, in something that is factual. All that academic reasoning has its limits. Even people who say that objective reality doesn't exist on a day-to-day -day level don't live like that. Because when payroll 
shorts them by half on their paycheck. Then suddenly people become acquainted with facts and start making true claims about the truth and what's right and what's wrong. And the reason for that is there is truth, there are facts, and we live in an interesting time. The person I spoke to between services confessed that she finds herself in a tough position because she said, I, I want to believe, but the world around me hammers away at the fact that it's all a fairy tale, that it's all magic. And I said, like the flying spaghetti monster? Yeah, like the flying spaghetti monster. I want to tell you part of what I told these two people who came to my office. There are answers. I don't have time to give you all the answers, but I want to give you one of my favorites. I want to give you one of the ones that is most stunning to me, particularly if you've never seen it, of why I believe that the Christmas story is a story that relates an actual historical event, and the most important one of all. I'm going to be looking primarily at what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. You need to know that the things I'm reading to you have been settled as historical documents for centuries. And the Bible itself, from its very first pages, claims that it is telling you the truth, that it is dealing with actual reality. In the very first words of Scripture, we're told for the, re the reason for the existence of the universe. Genesis 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God appears as the one who made everything. And that right there is where I can't reason much further than someone who simply is and simply exists and simply creates. But the Bible tells me from the very first page that that's how it all got started. And across all of its pages, in 66 books and 1,189 chapters, what the Bible is continually telling me is that it is dealing with life as it actually is. It's telling me the lives of people who actually existed. It's telling me about real-life problems. And most of all, from cover to cover, there is an overarching theme. There's an arc. There's a story that tells me that God is dealing with the world He created that by the third chapter of Scripture had already ruined itself when the people He made walked away from Him. Some people refuse to believe in God because there's evil in the world. The Bible is the first book to tell you that. It tells you that murder, evil, selfishness, the very worst things, the things that make life painful and uncertain have been part of God's world since people decided to live without Him. And the rest of the book tells you how he is working to the present day to get us back, to redeem us. He truly is, as this woman said, pursuing us. And you see the pursuit flame into personal existence in one man's life in Genesis chapter 12 when it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Here's the bottom line of the promises that God made Abraham. He said, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's dealing with a real person. 
His name was Abram. He lived, we're told, originally in an ancient city called Ur. You can visit those ruins. You can visit these places. You can stand on a road that Abraham would have traveled in the nation of Israel to this very day. Abram would have grown up, according to what we archaeology tells us, among people who worshipped the moon, who looked up and saw this bright body above them and in their ancient superstitious ways believed that that was an object worthy of worship. Genesis 12, after telling you what ruin the world fell into because of sins, tells you that God began to individually deal with one person and made him this extraordinary promise that I just read to you. That he who was childless would not only have children but have a great family. And from his descendants would rise a great nation and that God himself would be Abraham's personal advocate so that God would bless Abraham and he would also bless and help those who stood on his side and he would oppose and curse those who stood against him. All of that to fulfill the bottom line promise that God made Abraham. God said to this former moon-worshiping Chaldean, that at least was what his ancestors did, he said to a man with no kids, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, that's kind of staggering. If somebody told you that in a few years you would have a child, and from that singular child, every ethnic group, every nation and tribe would somehow be blessed and helped, would you find that easy to believe? Unless you're a narcissist, probably not. Narcissists believe that they grace everyone with their presence everywhere you go, but if you're, if you're psychologically normal, you would find it hard to believe that God was going to deal with you in such a way that from your descendants, from your family, someone would rise who would bless every ethnic group on earth. That's the 12th of 1189 chapters. The rest of Scripture tells you story by story, promise by promise, how God kept that prophecy. In fact, there are more than 300 prophecies regarding what we call the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Messiah is one of those terms that's sung a lot at Christmas. It's not a religious term, it's just a word that we didn't translate from Hebrew. That's why it sounds strange to American ears. Messiah is a Hebrew word that simply means God's anointed one. It's right out of their culture. In Hebrew culture, if someone was being anointed, they were being set apart in a special way for a special task. When God, in all of these promises and prophecies across His Word to His people, the nation that came from Abraham, He kept making promises. He made this stunning promise to an unknown, obscure man with no particular merit of his own who found it by God's grace, courage and faith enough to actually believe God. And God kept writing and kept telling us about that, and there are over 300 prophecies regarding this mysterious figure that the Hebrew Scriptures call the Messiah. Here's one of them. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That's a mouthful. Let's go through it slowly. 
First, we're told the name of a town. What is it? Bethlehem. Doesn't sound like much to you if you didn't grow up in that culture. It's an important city because it was the city of David. 300 years before Micah wrote, about 1,000 B.C., David came on the scene. And you can see in Micah's prophecy, Bethlehem is of no particular importance. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's the name of the city and probably the name of the district. You're too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're a, a town of no particular importance. Bethlehem literally means bread house. And the reason for that is they grew a lot of grain there. It was kind of the breadbasket for the rest of the country. It was Kansas, if you will, to us. Now, I have a lot of family from Kansas, and no particular offense to Kansas. In fact, why are you laughing? <laughs> See, that's that coastal prejudice that creeps in if you live in Southern California or you live in New York. But that kind of flyover country idea... You hear about sometimes Ari Leitz talk about flyover country places like Kansas. That's what Bethlehem was. Scholars look back to the days of Jesus and they tell us this population of probably no more than a thousand people. This Christmas Eve and the weekends, we'll have far more than that come to this place. It's little. That's why Micah said, You, oh, house of bread, Ephrathah who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, from your small stature, from your town of no importance, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Could that be David? No, he was 300 years ago. It's somebody else. For you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Well, now we're in the realm of the supernatural. Whoever Micah means, he's talking about someone who has existed before, who is literally in Hebrew from time interminable in the past. From endless time in the past, God says, someone will step forward for me, from you, little Bethlehem, and it will be a ruler in Israel, and his days are from actually long ago. Isaiah likewise told us about this Messiah. Isaiah 7, verse 14, Isaiah wrote, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. And here again is one of those Hebrew words that didn't get translated. Emmanuel literally means in Hebrew, God is with us. What will the sign be? Someone will do something extraordinary. We're back into the realm of the supernatural. A virgin will have a son, and his name shall be called God with us. And when was that written? 700 B.C. For a very long time, people thought, skeptics, argued that these stories had to be backwritten. Because as I keep reading, you're going to see that these promises take a very personal shape and they become the very identity of Jesus. But listen, you'll have to take my word for it, but if you don't, I'm happy to point you to sources. There's no doubt, this is what Micah wrote. Micah wrote 700 years before Christ. He wrote of something that Jesus himself couldn't personally control, which is when and where he would be born. 
Nobody chooses that. Isaiah likewise wrote 700 B.C., and there's more. In Psalm 22, David speaks a thousand years before Jesus, and he paints us a picture of the most famous death in human history, the death of Jesus on the cross. Listen to him describe it. David speaking of his own suffering, but looking forward in poetic but prophetic promise language of something that David himself could not possibly fill out all by himself. Here's what David wrote in Psalm 22, 1,000 years before Jesus was born. David wrote this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. That was the common experience of crucified men. Their bones were dislocated because of the position they were placed in. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to my jaws. What's going on here? What killed more crucified men than anything else? Dehydration. It was dehydration and exposure and bloodletting that killed men on the cross. The cross, the heart of the crucified man, because of the awkward position in which he was placed, was under enormous stress, was less and less water in the system and blood pouring for him at every point. Death couldn't be far away. And this describes beautifully, dramatically, graphically, heartbreakingly, exactly the experience of a crucified man. And it gets on even, it becomes even more detailed. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, it says. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. What's stunning about that is the concept of human crucifixion is not going to be invented for several more centuries. In other words, David in this little slice of poetry is physically describing the experience of someone that didn't even exist until long after he was dead. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And all four Gospels tell you of Roman soldiers taking part of their bounty. One of the cruel things about the crucifixion, if the crucified man had anything of value, it was taken from him. And because Jesus had a garment that had no seam and couldn't be divided without being ruined... They gambled for it right in front of him. Verifiably, no doubt about it, in the Hebrew Scriptures from long, long ago, written down 1,000 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah tells us another portion of his death. It gives us the details of his burial. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says this, "'They made his grave with the wicked.'" It's well known that Jesus was crucified between two criminals, one of whom said before dying that he deserved what he was getting. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. That's a strange line. What could it possibly mean that someone's grave is to be made with the wicked, but with the rich man in his death? How do you start out to be buried with wicked people and end up in the tomb of a rich man? Well, that's exactly what happened to Jesus, a man on the council named Joseph of Arimathea who disagreed with his crucifixion, did for Jesus in death what he could not do for him in life. 
unable to advocate for him and make sure that justice was done so that Jesus was not killed on a cross when Jesus was dead, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, stepped forward and donated his family tomb. That's why Jesus was killed among criminals but buried among the wealthy. And Isaiah says all of this is true although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was certainly, I can't prove this, but I'm reasonably sure based on what crucifixion would have done to a human being, that Jesus was the first man ever crucified without objection and curses for his killers. There was no violence. There was no deceit. There was no protest. Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 49, verse 6, God speaking to his servant, to this Messiah, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. 2,000 years B.C., God had promised Abraham that there would be a nation come from him that God would bless, but now sin has ruined everything, and they are routinely in captivity, being scattered, always idolatrous, always double-minded. And God says all across the Hebrew Scriptures, these are the parts, if you've read the prophets, that seem mysterious to you because they're talking to them in their day about their future restoration. But Isaiah 49 looks past merely saving and restoring Israel, and God says to His servant, it's too light a thing for you just to bring back Israel. It is too light that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, another name for Israel to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's too small. The scope is too narrow. I'll do more than that. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And here we are. A few Jewish people among us, but many, many more tribes from everywhere outside of Israel. One of the things I love about our church, and I often think of scriptures like this when I see you guys hanging out, is our diversity. We have a whole bunch of languages and a whole bunch of nations represented in this little congregation because Isaiah was making a promise that people would be gathered by God from all the nations that merely saving the nation of Israel would be too small of a task. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I've just read to you a few promises that you can check in writing that have always been in the Hebrew Scriptures, that have been read in Jewish families and are read to this day as Jesus did in the synagogue. Now, what are the chances of one man fulfilling these prophecies. Well, someone did the math. His name was Dr. Peter Stoner. He taught for many years at Pasadena City College where he was the chairman of the math department. He also taught up north at the university in, in Santa Barbara, which is called Westmont. It took me a second because I went to Biola and there's a little rivalry there, okay? Didn't want to come out. Dr. Stoner asked himself as a mathematician this question, what are the chances of a man fulfilling eight of these prophecies? There are hundreds. But we can find, as I just showed you, we can find a few that are so clear, so stunning, that it's been the experience of some of you. You were raised in 
a religious tradition. You had an entirely different spiritual perspective. But then someone read to you a passage like Isaiah 53, and just from general cultural knowledge of who Jesus was and what He was like, you heard that and said, I'm, that's got to be Jesus. Who else could it be? So Stoner asked himself mathematically, what are the chances of a man fulfilling eight of those prophecies? And his answer was one in 100 quadrillion. I don't like the odds very much, do you? I wouldn't bet a dollar on one in 100 quadrillion. It's astronomical. It's beyond reason to think that someone could accidentally fulfill all of the things that were written down about Jesus literally a millennia and 700 years before Jesus was born. Now, why did that happen to fulfill the first promise that God made way back in Genesis 12 when He said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed? Sometime after Jesus' resurrection, a skeptical Jewish scholar who knew the Hebrew Scriptures, according to his own testimony, better than any of his contemporaries, who could from, from, had come from the right tribe and studied with the right people and excelled all of his fellow students, didn't believe a word of it, had set his life, in fact, to using his considerable influence and prestige to hounding Christians into prison and unto death. And then he met Jesus. And he read the Scriptures with new eyes. And he started going into the synagogue where he had once been an esteemed teacher and commentator of the very Word of God, and were told over and over again, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures until they threw him out. His name was Paul. And he wrote a group of former pagans and explain to them who Jesus was in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Speaking of Jesus, Paul said this. Will you read it with me? For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's it. Everything God ever promised is fulfilled in only one person. It's Jesus. That's why we're inviting you continually to open up the Bible to read what God has said and to pay particular attention to what Jesus has said, not because it's merely good for you, not because it's a better way to live, though that's also true, but because every promise that God ever made is personally fulfilled in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the substance, He is the fulfillment of everything that God ever promised His wrecked humanity. He is the promise keeper, He is the promise kept. See, that ties all of life together. A mundane thing, you'd think just a little church program thing, like take some of those Christmas ornaments and invite some people to come with you. Once you understand that Jesus personally is the fulfillment of everything that God ever promised human beings, that's way bigger than a casual invitation to go to something like the Rotary Club. It's an actual invitation to a sacred moment to stand in a moment and to hear in plain, clear language that you can understand what God has been doing with you and for you all along, that God really is the pursuer of people. Why is Christmas so hard, depressing, and shot through with grief for so many of us? Because the Bible is telling us of life as it actually is. It's beautiful and glorious because He made it. 
We live for joy, and we live for happiness, and we live for pleasure because He is joyful, and He is filled with pleasure, but sin ruined all of it. That's why God set aside His own Son to not create a fictitious story whereby people could feel better and have a holiday where they forget their troubles based on a beautiful story that someone made up long ago, but people could remember the greatest act of love in human history, that God seeing His creation, glorious as you are with His word written on your heart called your conscience that continually tells you the difference between right and wrong and points you back to Him and accuses you when you do wrong, and you continually feel unsettled and uneasy because you know that something is wrong with the world and something is wrong with you, the Bible tells you of that endless pursuit across all of these centuries culminating in the arrival of Jesus on this earth so that every promise God ever made could find its Yes, in Him. That's why it's so important to hear from God and His Word. If God has ever made you a promise, I'm not talking about something you hope for or something you convince yourself of simply to have some kind of mental crutch to lean on, but if God has ever promised you anything, the fulfillment of that promise is not going to be anything or anyone except His Son, Jesus. So it matters a great deal. That's why I'm inviting you to trust Him. If you already know Him, that's why I'm inviting you to take the next step with Him. If you've come in these days to a point where you've actually placed your personal trust in Him and you've been welcomed into God's family, do the next thing and be baptized as He told you to do. If you know that He has kept every one of God's promises and you're living proof of how good and loving and forgiving God is and Jesus has appeared in your life to keep God's promises to you, tell other people. They may not listen. They often don't. They didn't listen to him, but if you know him, you listened. And doesn't every single person deserve at least the opportunity to hear the best news that's ever told of how much God has promised and how he kept his promise? And for those who are skeptics and have hard questions, isn't it good to see it in writing and to know that Verifiably, it was written a thousand years ago, and we live in the days of its fulfillment. That's how much He loves you. That's how good He is. That's how well He keeps His promises. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Hey, could I ask you for a minute about your own personal trust in Jesus? Just like that. Not your religious commitment, not your to-do list to do better, your personal trust in Jesus. Do you trust Him as your Savior? Whatever you do, don't put your trust in me or anyone else. To be clear, if you're new in church, like more and more people I'm talking to, I'm not asking you to join us, I'm asking you to trust Him. We've joined together because that's part of what He's doing. Our shared goal is to love Him and to tell others. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you trusting Him. Have you? If you haven't, will you today? That's my invitation to you. To see the reality of sin in the world and sin in your heart and your guilty conscience 
Sometimes telling you you did great, and other times telling you you're blowing it, you're doing wrong, and you feel that distance. You feel that guilt, that shame, that accusation. I'm asking you to turn to Him personally right now and say, Lord, forgive me. I trust you. I can't save myself. Please save me. You save me. I can't do it. You do it. That's the beginning. To turn away from doing your own thing and start following Him. That's the beginning. That's why we exist. That's what we're in the process of doing, of hearing His voice, not only on Sundays, but in His Word, in conversations where we remind each other of who He is, what He told us to do. We're in the process of learning to trust Him and follow Him. That's it. That's discipleship. I'm asking some of you, I don't know who, but I'm asking some of you to take the first step, the saving step of turning to Him and saying, yes, Lord, I believe you have said that you keep all of God's promises. Keep them to me. Keep them for me. If you do that, would you pray and ask Him? Would you tell Him you're sorry for your sin and ask Him to save you? If you do, please let us know on that card before you leave. We want to pray for you. We want to do what we can to help you. And the vast majority of us here probably are already following Him. We have a golden opportunity to tell others. Lord, speak to us. For those who are lost and hurt and suffering, remind them, speak to your children about how you keep every promise that God made. For those who are right on that edge of faith and deciding between continuing to trust themselves and start trusting you, Lord, would you please graciously pull them across the line? I remember that moment for myself. Help them give up on themselves and trust you. And tell us so that we could join the celebration in heaven as they come home to their true heavenly Father. Bless us, Lord, as we give. Our sole purpose is to make you famous so that people will know what a great promise keeper you are. Amen.